go ahead and kick us off. I think we got a bunch of people here. So, uh, as always, thank you for joining us for the Deleuze and Guattari Anti-Oedipus Stream, the Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. As we are going through on, uh, I think, our second of many, many times, we are currently in section 1.3, and we're going to be reading about the subject and enjoyment. Uh, as always, you are absolutely free to join us live as we read this. You can find our Discord link on our Twitter, which is D-A-N-D-G-Q-C, D-N-G-Q-C, uh, on Twitter, and you can find our Discord link there. Uh, you can also find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, uh, kind of a bunch of places. Uh, today we're going to be doing just a straight-through reading as we go through, as always. Uh, please toss any questions you have into the chat. Uh, if uh, we hit a pause point and you have questions as we go or what we're discussing, don't hesitate to unmute yourself and discuss. I am going to be trying to push us through this section. It is not terribly long, but it is absolutely a uh, section that we can rabbit hole quickly and spend probably two hours talking about even just the first paragraph. So I'm going to try to do our best to avoid that. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, dive in and we are going to get into the subject and enjoyment. Conforming to the meaning of the word process, recording falls back on, say Rabat Sur, production, but the production of recording itself is produced by the production of production. Similarly, recording is followed by consumption, but the production of consumption is produced in and through the production of recording. This is because something on the order of a subject can be discerned on the recording surface. It is a strange subject, however, with no fixed identity, wandering about over the body without organs, but always remaining peripheral to the desiring machines, being defined by the share of the product it takes for itself, garnering here, there, and everywhere a reward in the form of a becoming or an avatar, being born of the states that it consumes and being reborn with each new state. It's me, and so it's mine. Even suffering, as Marx says, is a form of self-enjoyment. Doubtless all desiring production is, in and of itself, immediately consumption and consummation, and therefore sensual pleasure. But this is not yet the case for a subject that can situate itself only in terms of the disjunctions of a recording surface, in what is left after each division. Returning yet again to the case of Judge Schreber, we note that he is vividly aware of this fact. The rate of cosmic sexual pleasure remains constant, so that God will find a way of taking his pleasure with Schreber, even if, in order to do so, Schreber must transform himself into a woman. But Schreber experiences only a residual share of this pleasure, as a recompense for his suffering, or as a reward for his becoming woman. Quote, On the other hand, God demands a constant state of enjoyment, and it is my duty to provide him with this in the shape of the greatest possible output of spiritual voluptuousness, and if, in this process, a little sensual pleasure falls to my share, I feel justified in accepting it as some slight compensation for the inordinate measure of suffering and privation that has been mine for so many past years. Just as part of the libido as energy of production was transformed into energy of recording, Newman, a part of this energy of recording is transformed into energy of consummation, Voluptus. It is this residual energy that is the motive force behind the third synthesis of the unconscious, the conjunctive synthesis. So it's 
or the production of consumption. So there's a lot happening inside of this paragraph. I mean, just a ton. So we're gonna have to break it down a little bit and I'm gonna do a couple steps and then I'm gonna open it up and see if anyone has a counter arguments, questions, any of those things. The thing at this point to remember that they've been discussing until this point is they've been discussing the process of how the desiring machines work. And there three steps have been talked about essentially so far. In the first chapter, the first section, they talk essentially about the production of desire, how desire is sort of this font creative moment. And it's uh, the production of production, as they call it. In the second step, when desire is recorded, that sort of step of uh, when a thing happens, when we have these partial objects, which is how desire is made, as these partial objects either do or do not get satisfied, that is recorded on the body without organs. That is the, the story that is told. The little note is left, a little scratch is left inside of the skin of the body without organs. Now we've gotten into the point of the last step of the three syntheses. And the third part of these is the moment when actually we have what they call consummation, and it has a very decidedly sexual overtone. But it's this moment where the desire is basically consummated, and as that happens, there is a subject that is created. So there's a few things that we have to break down for this. So when we talk about, uh, so that uh, I'll, I'll go with what Trey's, at, Trey's pointing for. The first sentence here is that first step. The recording falls back on production, but production of recording itself is produced by the production of production. When the first step, and it's the point is to think about these syntheses as being basically directly connected tubes of machines, where production produces production, which creates recording. It pushes forward as, it, as that water, as desire pushes forward into the second step, recording is produced. When recording is produced, that also then kind of circulates back again and a new connection is made. That connection, that desire starts over again. Partial objects connect again, desire has been fulfilled or not, that's been recorded and production continues. As these things sort of go back and forth, the second sentence, recording is followed by consumption, but the production of this consumption is produced in and through the production of recording. As recording is produced, the desire, again, moves forward, the machine moves forward, the energy that becomes a new thing and pushes forward again. And at this point, you have the moment of consummation. And this is where the subject is created. And when we talk about the subject, it's important that we uh, understand we are talking about the broader sort of philosophical concept, the, the uh, Cartesian subject, the I think, therefore I am idea. Uh, right now, your experience, your measured experience is, is experienced by the subject that is you. You are this thing that is experiencing. And so the idea that they're talking about here is that this is when the subject is created. You have these three steps. The subject seems to come out of that. And that's when they start talking about this strange subject because it's discerned on this recording surface. When all of these recordings are made on the body without organs, we're able to look at them in aggregate. And we're not talking about one. We're not talking about two recordings or three. We're talking about tons of them, shit tons of recordings in order for you to have any semblance of a subject. You exist as kind of a, a virtual object. As you look at all of this, suddenly you appear, your strange subject, however, with no fixed identity, wandering about over the body without organs, always remaining peripheral to the desiring machines. You're not the desiring machines themselves. You're peripheral to them. 
uh, and your subject is defined by the share of the product it takes for itself. The beauty of this consummation, and it's what they kind of get into in the rest of this paragraph, is that in those moments, it actually creates this sort of self-enjoyment, this, this final consummation. And in those moments, we're able to say, oh, this is mine. I did this. I am here. I am the subject. I think, therefore, I am. It's a lot. That's my understanding of the first half of this. The second half is when we talk about Schreber is them utilizing Schreber, uh, who is the uh, schizophrenic Freud wrote about quite a bit, and discussing sort of a, a handful we'll get into in a moment of what happens when that's recorded. But I want to talk about that first half. Did anything I say there make sense? <laughs> no, that's fair, Ben. I'm, I'm here. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a long ramble, and I apologize for that. But it's, it's important that we talk through what they're, what they're discussing here, which is the three syntheses. We went through this yesterday. We had a long discussion, and it was, uh, I would say it was difficult. This is not an easy subject, but this is deeply foundational to the entire setup of what this book is about, and ultimately, really, what Deleuze and Guattari's, uh, if you want to say, core philosophy is, or theses about how we experience life, this is it. And so this is very important. So please, uh, if you have uh, questions about what I just said, we can take it piece by piece. Uh, I may not be completely correct. I am putting that out there as my understanding in a simplistic way. Okay, so let's get this going then. Um, Brooks mentioned the Cartesian subject and the individual, right? So, right, we all know for Descartes, there's this idea that, you know, how do you prove that you're, you're in the world, right? So Descartes comes up with the, I think, therefore I am. And then he starts to kind of build a world from there. Like it's almost deductory in that sense. Um, but that would be like your, your subject, right? Is this, this I that kind of exists oddly enough, like in this weird state where it's almost without the world. Um, so let's, let's take this into the psychoanalysis. What is the subject for psychoanalysis, right? It's going to be the, the person receiving psychoanalysis, the analysis. In this sense, right, we're talking about the subject. So one can take that as though, okay, well, the analysis, wherever there's analysis, there's a subject, and that's kind of it, right? If we go deeper than that, and we talk about, right, instead of assuming that the subject is just there where analysis is, if we begin to think of it in terms of who this person is before they got there and everything, right, the, some of the fundamental questions that will be asked during the session we start to realize the subject doesn't appear in a vacuum in that sense, right? There's a something preceding all that. What Deleuze and Guadagnier are getting at here in a larger sense then is that with that subject, there are subjectivities, right? Those subjectivities um, aren't simply like, it's not as though you simply have those in these kind of spaces or vacuums, right? They have to be produced and they're produced uh, as intensities that the desiring machines, or rather the subject, which is those desiring machines, right, consume and thereby are consummated through. So if we take the breast and the mouth, there's a subjectivity there. One might say there's a subjectivity of hunger, there's a subjectivity of lactation or lactating, right? These are things they're actively experiencing. They'll give the example of Schreber feeling like he has breasts as a woman. These are aspects of the subjectivity and the intensities 
So what Deleuze and Guattari are building out here is how these subjectivities are produced and how one experiences them. Yes, uh, the the their core critique of the idea of the Cartesian subject is that it presupposes a lot of stuff. When he says, "I think, therefore I am," why do you think that? Why do you think the things you do? Why do you perceive the things you do? How does this stuff exist? How do how does the I get created? And so they stepped back and they through a lot of other readings, and I'm happy to give sources on this, starting with ultimately Hume with empiricism and subjectivity. Uh, Deleuze began starting to explore the idea of, well, what comes before the I? How, what, what makes that exist? How, how do I know what I am? How do I find the things that I like? How do I have my experience? How do I exist? And the, over time, they went through a lot of different versions of the three syntheses, and there's a lot of places where he plays with this, all the ideas. But the steps with the desiring machines is where they ended up, and it's a really insightful, interesting take. Instead of saying that uh, there is uh, all of these things in the unconscious, which is very Freudian, this idea that, well, your unconscious has a whole bunch of symbols floating around and, you know, they interact and they do things. It's all crazy and wild. And then at some point, shit comes out of there and you deal with that. And it's almost like you exist after the fact. And Deleuze is like, no, no, keep going further back. What if we remove everything, we go to the point where there's just literal partial objects? It's not that Brooks is drinking a bottle of milk and that, that all of the signs and semiotics that go with that. What if it's just as simple as lips milk, lips milk bottle, as an example, that connection. That's the first step actually, is that we, we desire to connect to things. We desire to connect to everything. If you've ever been around an infant, an infant tries to connect to literally everything that it can, especially with its lips and mouth. Uh, the problem is a lot of stuff that doesn't do anything for. Uh, I don't want to say it's not pleasurable. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't do anything for you. It literally doesn't work. So over time, we kind of learn that. And that's the second step, basically, is the idea of all of these connections. Some of them pay off. Others don't. Uh, and payoff doesn't have to be pleasure. It can be, as they say in here, it can be suffering. It can be a lot of things. Something is produced. As they talk about in the first one, production is the thing that matters. When the connection happens, was something produced? There was something produced, excellent. That is excellent, good, recording, it's done. That, that connection was satisfied is the term that they use. Uh, or it didn't work. It's like, oh shit, this didn't produce anything. And that's recorded too. Now over time, that kind of binary reality that's created, if you do this a shitload and there are uh, there's lots of ways to describe this. I like to talk about it in terms of uh, if you've ever seen some really, really great pieces of art where uh, someone draws like a line on the sidewalk, but they draw 10 million lines. And if you go put a drone high in the sky, it turns out that they've been painting a painting. And it's this incredibly complex thing. When you're up close, you see the line. And that's the kind of thing they're talking about here where you have the recordings. They're these tiny little things, lots of them. But when you have lots of them, suddenly what happens is it kind of produces this you, this subject who gets to, in retrospect, say, well, this was my experience. This is me. This is what I've done. This is what I've wanted. That's the final step, the consummation, where all of these recordings, all of these things uh, ultimately become consummated in some semblance of you know, whatever it may be. But it's this, uh, this final moment of the subject saying, it's me. This is where I've, I've come from. And you can see this in 
kind of the change over time of children, how they move on from being someone who absolutely can't say that or doesn't really understand what they are to being able to have their own personality, their own development and to adults where we have a lot more complexity than that, but we still say things are ours. These three steps happen. They are not three disparate steps. Their first paragraph, the first paragraph here is very much about talking about these are not separate. These are imminent happening upon each other, tied into each other. As far as we're telling, effectively, they're happening simultaneously a lot, lots of times, every single moment of our experience. And so our subject, uh, the eye, is produced in sort of the cloud of all of these going off and happening. It's a really, really difficult concept. I, we had trouble with it uh, yesterday during our reading, uh, our sort of roundtable. So it's a, it's a thing that we're going to have to spend some time on, and I'm going to uh, have to talk about kind of a lot through this entire section. And then when we get into chapter two, it's, it's, they get very specific with how it functions. So I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Is this subject um, already uh, a, a, a completed form in some way or not at all yet? Uh, so look at what's happening with the subject there. It's, it's being consummated through these intensities. With, and, and these are enabled upon the surface of the body without organs in relation to desiring machines, right? So this is a subject that's not like the Cartesian eye, where there's this um, sort of clear singularity, right? This is a subject comprised of all these different desiring machines in relation to the body without organs, and how the, um, the tension during the attraction and repulsion of this, the disjunctions leads to the intensities that will be consumed by these different machines and ultimately in this way consummate them as what they are so this subject is actually um what this subject entails is based on what it interacts with does that make sense based on that which is taking place in the three syntheses right so like whatever these desire machines are in a particular connective synthesis right and how they function in relation to the body without organs, what it tells them to do, this is going to produce the intensities that give you the subject. That, that is partly correct as well, and that one thing they're definitely getting at here, and that this is not a atomized individual subject, this is a being in the world, right, made from the, the interactions with the world. Very different to what uh, Descartes would have said. Very, very different. There's a, there's, there's no assumption with the losing Guatri that you exist or something exists prior to uh, sort of experience. The, the quote I, I read yesterday that I think really set it up for me is, uh, Descartes said, I, I think, therefore I am. Deleuze may have responded, I feel, therefore I am. And it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting sort of uh, look at sensation and experience as sort of this primacy and that we're made up of a sort of large combination of all of those put together. I, I kind of don't like that because I don't think that, that there is an attempt here to make a statement on existence. Like Descartes was trying to make a statement on existence. Oh, do I exist? You know, I think that whether one exists or not is almost irrelevant here because the subject is a being in the world, right? So there's no, there's no distinction between the being and the world anyway. 
So to say, do I exist is like a meaningless question in that context. I'd, I'd like to suggest an analogy, which I put up in the chat, which is this uh, Remora fish that um, uh, is in a kind of parasitic symbiotic relationship with sharks. You know, the, in, in Deleuze and Guattari, they have the idea that the, um, the subject is a peripheral product of other things that are going on that and it, it talks about traversing the surface of the body without organs. And so in this kind of symbiotic relationship you can see between the shark and this remora fish, you know, the the, the there is this uh peripheral parasitic or symbiotic relationship that exists in nature that uh is like uh, a, a connection between desiring machines. And I think that's the kind of thing they're thinking about rather than being the subject being the center of everything and everything else relating to it. Instead, the subject is peripheral to everything and is a final product rather than the first thing. So if we walk out what Kent was saying there, that's actually really important, right? Because uh... Again, it's not simply that the subjectivity is in the, the subject uh, arises because we're doing the analysis. It's this production of the subject. And in this sense, it's not the, it's not the, the, uh, it's not like the, we're talking, trying to get at the relationship of the id and the ego. We're trying to get at how, by looking at these different connectivities, right, these different um, assemblages of the three syntheses we can start seeing how subjectivity is produced there and take the subject for this, um, for that, which is being, which is taking place in the synthesis, right? And how this is changing and how different breaks and connections are happening in relation to it. Right. And I think part of that actually gets answered in the next paragraph, which I'm going to move to, as I said, we could spend, we really could spend hours and hours discussing this and we're going to figure out a way to do it. Uh, but we'll see. Next paragraph. We must examine how the synthesis is formed or how the subject is produced. Our point of departure was the opposition between desiring machines and the body without organs. The repulsion of these machines, as found in the paranoiac machine of primary repression, gave way to an attraction in the miraculating machine. But the opposition between attraction and repulsion persists. It would seem that a genuine reconciliation of the two can take place only on the level of a new machine, functioning as the return of the repressed. There are a number of proofs that such a reconciliation does or can exist. With no further details being provided, we are told of Robert Gee, who, the very talented designer of paranoiac electrical machines, quote, since he was unable to free himself of these currents that were tormenting him, he gives every appearance of having finally joined forces with them, taking passionate pride and portraying them in their total victory, in their triumph. End quote. Freud is more specific when he stresses the crucial turning point that occurs in Schreber's illness when Schreber becomes reconciled to becoming woman and embarks upon a process of self-cure that brings him back to the equation nature equals production, the production of a new humanity. As a matter of fact, Schreber finds himself frozen in the pose and trapped in the paraphernalia of a transvestite at a moment when he is practically cured and has recovered from all his faculties. 
I am something to be found, standing before the mirror or elsewhere, with the upper portion of my body partly bared and wearing sundry feminine adornments, such as ribbons, trumpery necklaces, and the like. This only occurs, I may add, when I am by myself, and never, at least so far as I am able to avoid it, in the presence of other people. Let us borrow the term celibate machine to designate this machine that succeeds the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine, forming a new alliance between the desiring machines and the body without organs so as to give birth to a new humanity or a glorious organism. This is tantamount to saying that the subject is produced as a mere residuum alongside the desiring machines or that he confuses himself with this third productive machine and with the residual reconciliation that it brings about. A conjunctive synthesis of consummation in the form of a wonderstruck, so that's what it was. Continuing mostly on that final point here uh, about the creation of the subject, as they talk about this, they're talking about this final moment of uh, the, the, the consummation that can take a lot of different setups. They go into the celibate machine. And I know, uh, Jack, uh, you gave a little bit of talk around how a celibate machine works. Do you have a chance you're up for doing that again? Yeah, I can I can help out here. Um, so, okay. So part of like uh, being analyzed, right, is you're looking for the, so that's what it was. Part of the distinction they're making here is that it's not like um, they're they're trying to draw the distinction of how this works between schizo and psychoanalysis through the syntheses. So, right for the third synthesis, we're trying to find the intensities that are that are making the subjectivities possible. So we're looking for the subjectivities of the um, of the assemblage here. That subjectivity, um, like I said earlier, is produced as uh, intensities from the interplay of the paranoiac and schizophrenic, or rather from the repulsion, from the body without organs doing the repulsion and attracting investments in the desiring machines. So that count, that interplay produces uh, intensities that will sort of be on the body without organ surface as part of the overall territories. The celibate machine here functions um, in sort of an inscriptive way in a sense. So I'm thinking here of Kafka's penal colony, where the machine's job is to inscribe upon the body of the convict something like be just. But the point here is to understand it's inscribing a kind of subjectivity. Uh, to go further with this in Kafka's story, when that subjectivity is sort of culminated uh, in the story, that person has this moment of kind of ecstasy. The parallel here for Deleuze and Guadri is that that intensity, which I'm calling an ecstasy here, that is the experience of subjectivity. That's the so what it was. To give one final point, where they say the return of the repressed. So they're playing off this earlier in section two. Uh, and they're talking about, they're playing on how we understand repression here and how psychoanalysis um, how they understand repression. So the quote they give is, and this is in relations to the body without organs, repulsing or doing a paranoiac investment. This is page nine of the Penguin edition. In order to resist the linked, connected, and interrupted flows, it, the body without organs, sets up a counterflow of amorphous, undifferentiated fluid in order to resist using words composed of articulated phonetic units 
it utters only gasps and cries that are sheer, unarticulated blocks of sound. We are of the opinion that what is ordinarily referred to as so-called primary repression means precisely that. It is not a so-called counter-cathesis, but rather this repulsion of desiring machines by the body of the organs. This is the real meaning of the paranoiac machine. The desiring machines attempt to break into the body of the organs, and the body of the organs repels them since it experiences them as an overall persecution apparatus. So, right, the main thing here is the repression. The way to understand repression here is a, a, a counterinvestment in the sense of the repulsion of the desiring machines. So what's happening here is, right, the return of the repressed, what they're getting at is this kind of celibate machine is like a paranoiac machine in that sense. They're going to qualify this more later on, but it's it's producing the subjectivity that ultimately is consummated by, um, or I shouldn't say producing, it is inscribing the voluptuous energy, the, the intensities uh, upon the desiring machines and enabling this... Uh, subjectivity so i'm going to say it's uh i'd like this to start where i think we got to a good point with a little bit of some foundational stuff uh, if you have questions please speak up let's have it out let's let's hear what what you need to hear no one knows who you are it's fine jump out let's ask some questions let's find out what people are uh, wanting to learn at this point i'm interested in how specifically this example of Judge Schraber applies to the uh, the celebrate machine, if that makes sense. So I guess as I'm understanding it right now, uh, Judge Schraber, the, the celebrate machine is what is allowing this sort of transvestism to return after it's been repressed is that correct i wouldn't say allowing i would say it's more the thing that comes about after or i mean i guess there's two ways i think there's two interpretations that are both equally valid that the celibate machine refers to this transvestism or it refers to the moment like the coming out of that that feeling because it, it, it's important to note that they do define the celibate machine as being a follow-on from the paranoiac machine right so you kind of bottle yourself up and you're rejecting all these these connections and then suddenly there's like this breakthrough this ah so this and then you realize like oh this is what i am or this is what this is there is of course the question of what constructs schraber's notion of the woman if in fact uh, you know, that is what is uh, being constructed or assembled during his uh, celibate recording. Mm -hmm. And so this would be, this would be that interplay of attraction and repulsion, the way the desiring machines are functioning in relation to the body without organs, right? So there's something happening in this, in this series of syntheses where these machines are acting in that sort of way. And the residuum of that interplay between those two forces, the attractive and the repulsive, this is being converted into voluptuous energy that serves to be um, furthered by the celibate machine here. So the becoming woman 
is a subjectivity um, that is residual of those intensities. That those desire machines are then um, consummating the subject through. On this note, it's a it's a really interesting, uh, specifically on that the phrase that they use right before they dive into it is they talk about uh, it's bringing him back to the equation nature equals production. And in this case, in parentheses, the production of a new humanity. Uh, the sort of thing that they seem to be getting at here and how I've read this, and I, I, I remember reading it before, is that when we talk about the celibate machine, it's this sort of moment of uh, where you've taken the, the paranoiac and uh, you've taken the, the general... Uh, consummation energy the miraculating and between the two of those because they're effectively you know irreconcilable in and of themselves the creation of a new humanity is that step where you've in this case it's uh, he stands there with his body bared wearing feminine adornments and it's the step beyond what uh, has been what i would call the normal recordings that have happened inside of his version of what humanity is so it's that step is that is that sensible or am i off I would say that's pretty much correct, yeah. Um, I, I think it is also worth noting that he's not just dressing as a woman. Like, he he does, to Schreiber, he does become a woman during these times, to, to the point where God can have sex with him, right? It's not just a, a peripheral thing. It's not He's not just cross-dressing to him, at least. Yeah, and I think one of the other parts is the timing of this, because... Uh, well, I think the idea of a, a man dressing women's clothing, especially, I think, for people who are into the lose these days, there's nothing odd about that, and we tend not to be super normative. They're very much here discussing that when they say production of a new humanity, they're talking, in my understanding, about sort of the normative understanding of what humanity is and Trevor taking that step to creating a new humanity. So how does uh, production in this context relate to a Judith, Judith Butler performance? Um, I would say can you compare them? I would say they're similar from different perspectives. In that, I think um, in in Judith Butler's case, there's kind of an intentionality, and I think here there's not much of an intentionality. It's almost unintentional. And and what and what do you think is the consequence of that? Um, I, I think they can still work together because Deleuze and Guattari are more so talking about the unconscious, and I think Judith Butler's more talking about like conscious effort. And so they can, I think they can both exist. But I, I think they're, they're similar in how they surface. So I, and again, this would be my reading of Butler. I'm not super experienced in it, nor am I like super good at feminist or queer theory in general. So I'm just preface. Um, but there is uh, intentionality would be one way to put it. I would say from my understanding of performance, that the goal there is that there is a goal for the person who is performative for the discussion that they're having when they're describing that person who's the subject, there is something prescriptive. They're saying, I want to become X. Whereas here, it's not so much that the subject is making the choice. It's actually, for Deleuze, almost flipped. It's not that the subject isn't making a choice either. Uh, I don't want to say that, but that due to how the desiring machines are firing off all of these and basically Drudge Schreber's entire life being written on the body without organs and the incommensurate problems that are happening with that and all these things, the, the way that these things emerge and the way the desiring machine sort of interplay causes the performance to exist, that these things happen. And then what happens because of the miraculating and because of the celibate machines, he says things like, when I am by myself, I put on all of these, I wear these things. And it's like, 
no, no dude, this, this, it's not how it works. That, that all of these design machines, all these partial objects are firing off. Your subject was created after the fact to pretend basically that you are an ego that made these choices. So it's, it, it surfaces the same as performance, but it is not an intentionality and prescriptive from the position of the subject. So it's something that happens pre-subject. So I, I think this is really interesting. Um, and if, if, if you allow me, I want to continue to uh, one more question on this. Sure. And that is uh, from a historical perspective. I'm really curious if anyone perhaps knows how this idea has been received um, within uh, trans philosophy uh, or, or, or queer theory or even queer communities, because I do remember uh, people not relating much to the Butler um, definition uh, within uh, queer and trans communities. Is that correct? So I, my understanding is it's it's been incredibly influential. And the rest of the book, as we get into it, and they, they have some amazing lines. Um, and, and again, not my direction of things, but I very much do believe in this direction. So it's been really interesting to see how they talk about becoming woman and becoming man, that there is no such thing necessarily as man or woman, that it's about becomings. Life is a process. Life is about production and the process of that. And that's really what they're getting at is that there is a process and all of this prior to the existence of the subject where you get to pretend that a specific static thing exists that's you. That specific static thing that you're pretending is effectively the body without or your body without organs. Uh, but you don't exist as, as that set. You aren't Brooks the the man who's masculine and the dad and all of these things that you kind of are becoming things. So it's a really interesting setup. Um, but, but there are, I mean, like Lou's right, there are agreements and disagreements and I shouldn't make bold, long statements. That's very I, fair. I think Butler was more influential in, in, in the aspect of identity, but I think Deleuze and Guattari were more influential in basically everything else in the, in those communities. Um, and I do want to say that I think you have a pretty critical misreading of Butler if you think that uh, performative is supposed to be the opposite of performance. Right? She doesn't think identity is performance. You don't have this identity within you that you then attempt to create and then perform. It's the other way around. It's performative in that you do it, and then the identity is determined afterwards. Right, so maybe I said it wrong. Uh, my understanding of it is that there is an it. That's the thing. That's that's the thing I'm getting at, is that in, in Butler's interpretation, there is specific semiotic language that is the intention of whatever it may be, uh, this this process, this performance. But with Deleuze, it's not that, that those things happen pre-subject and that they're all partial objects that arrange themselves based on your prior life experience. I think most of the uh, the differences are pretty minute. I think it's fair. To, to view them as very similar. Oh, I love that. Cool. I'll, I would love uh, if anyone has recommendations of like a good, like one of Butler's texts that really gets into it, that'd be great. I, again, I haven't engaged nearly enough. Uh, there's too many books. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. <laughs> She's quite difficult as well. Uh, I think Gender Troubles is probably the best one, which is a bit classic. Cool. But, I will add it uh, to my list of things. Um, Foucault has very similar ideas as well about identity. Sorry, who did you who did you name? Judith Butler. Did you mean or? You said blah 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 also has very um. Similar oh, Foucault. Ah, Foucault. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. It's, it's probably where she got it from, and I'm sure Foucault probably got it from Deleuze. 
if I recall correctly, Butler does sort of um, almost imply Foucault is engaging in some sort of romanticism at one point, I think in Gender Troubles, where Foucault wrote this thing on, um, I'm kind of forgetting, but it was Herculine Garden. Yes, that is exactly what I'm thinking of. See, now and... you're making me want to delete everything I said. I'm just going to edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> That's the nice part about being the despot, is you can edit the podcast. Yeah. Um, I definitely... I, I am not well-versed in queer theory at all, but I do relate on some level to this idea of this sort of post-hoc, oh, that's what it was, where it's sort of this sort of... I don't it's know, very this euphoric very... as well, I think. It's supposed to be very euphoric. And I think anybody that that is trans or realize they were gay or whatever can completely relate to exactly where they're coming from with this example in Anti-Oedipus, almost exactly. Like, it's a very... Uh, it's almost hard to talk about, like, because it's like this very yeah. ephemeral, like, just... This is how, oh, so this is what it is thing. The idea that, that there's no such, I mean, I shouldn't say there's no such thing, but this, so that's what it was, is only something that is produced after the fact of all these myriad forces coming together, mm-hmm. rather than just being, oh, so that's what it was, I was X all along. It's, there's something producing that feeling. Yes, and it's also not this is what I'm going to be either. It oh, is just a, that it's just a suddenly things come together and that's what that is, which I, I suppose is like the conjunctive since that since that is there where things overlap. Isn't that also a, a way to describe a lot of um, let's say psychoanalytical uh, uh, conclusions or something that one of the reasons why people like to diagnose themselves or like to get diagnosed is because of that feeling perhaps yeah and that's important for this juxtaposition because later on in the book they're going to discuss the where psychoanalysis goes wrong in, in, in this form of synthesis so for Deleuze and Guadri the oh yeah that's what it was this is a retrospective statement right this is um, finding subjectivities that have affected you as opposed to some sort of static narrative. Or you could also say that it's the creation of an assumed static narrative that the sub that kind of is the subject that that those those lines and those dots that seem to be put in a very specific way is how you view, oh, that's what it was. And that sort of static narrative being generated then. It's a really, uh, I love it. So I, I do want to move to the next paragraph because it is uh, to continue discussion about the celibate machines. And we've kind of stomped out a few of those points as we're having this discussion, but I want to make sure we read it out. So I'm going to go do that. Uh, Michel Hurot has identified a certain number of fantastic machines, celibate machines, that he has discovered in works of literature. The examples he points to are of many different sorts, and at a first glance do not seem to belong to a single category. Marcel Duchamp's painting, hmm, I, I'm going to anglicize it, I apologize. La Marie Miss à nous pas célibataire même. I am so ro- sorry, Roger, if I just gave you a stroke, I'm sorry. Um, the Entitled the, the Bride Stripped Bear by Her Bachelors, even. 
the machine in Kafka's In the Penal Colony, Raymond Russell's machines, those of Jari's Sumale, Supermale, certain of Edgar Allan Poe's machines, Villiers' Eve Future, the future Eve, etc. The characteristics that allow us to clarify all of them in this one category, though their importance varies according to the example considered, are as follows. The celibate machine first of all reveals the existence of a much older paranoiac machine, with its tortures, its dark shadows, its ancient law. The celibate machine itself is not a paranoiac machine, however. Everything about it is different. Its cogs, hiding carriages, its shears, needles, magnets, rays. Even when it tortures or kills, it manifests something new and different, a solar force. In the second place, this transfiguration cannot be explained by the miraculating powers in the machine possesses due to the inscription hidden inside it. Though it in fact contains within itself the most impressive sort of inscriptions. The recording supplied by Edison for Yves Future. A genuine consummation is achieved by the new machine, a pleasure that can be rightly that can rightly be called autoerotic, or rather automatic. The nuptial celebration of the new alliance, a new birth, a radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces. Uh, I love a lot of those examples. Uh, just to go over, I think the best one in the penal colony uh, is the story of essentially an execution machine that uh, uh, men are put into that uh, makes them see a uh, have a holy experience right prior to their death. And this is how executions are done. Uh, at some point, uh, the whole thing is kind of banned. The guy in charge of it believes in it so much, he he gets put in it, he puts himself in it, sets it off, and it turns out, no, actually, <laughs> it didn't really work. There was no religious experience. It's a terrible, horrifying death that he has. Uh, it's a It's a wonderful example of kind of how the Celibate Machine uh, puts out those, I want to say, stories, the dark shadows, the ancient laws, the, the, the long past narratives that we become a part of that we can attach ourselves to, the Celibate Machine. It's a really incredible way to describe it. Does anyone have any questions on this section and this part? So the last sentence is really the important one. A genuine consummation is achieved by this new machine. It's not a paranoiac machine. Again, it's different, runs completely differently comes after. The nuptial celebration of this new alliance, a new birth, a radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces. Uh, it's a, the the, consumption, the consummation, consumption, the, the closure is achieved there. That pleasure comes from it. The celibate machine produces that. Anyone have questions before I move on? Is, is it weird to say that this is similar to Videodrome? Or am I completely off the mark there? Okay. You know, I have to think about that one. But yeah, I, I, okay. I actually haven't put that connection together yet. Uh, that's, let us discuss another time. I have to, I have to rethink through that. I think actually maybe um, uh, he would be interesting to talk about in general. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it, it, it definitely would, but it's a really interesting uh it's a really interesting way because it's modern, modern conceptions of these things. It's one of the things that uh, when we talk about machines and they use all of their versions, all of these versions, even their art, the Deschamps piece is decidedly almost mechanical. And they use the terms machines quite often. 
and it's not that they literally mean machines. They're they're talking about a, a processual thing that creates. And so when we start talking about examples that existed after them, for example, stuff in the 80s and 90s, which really gets into this, uh, there's a lot of art. Videodrome, I think, very much fits in that. Uh, it, it's digital, so it doesn't have the same machinic feeling when we look at it, but it it, it applies. And so I, I, Videodrome would be a really interesting, even for movie night, maybe. Go ahead. No, just just to add, also because I know that Cronenberg, because I had an interview with him, that he was uh, very interested in um, a lot of philosophy anyway. Um, yeah, as Ben points out, I think that is the, the thing he says about how the uh, the piece, the art piece was not considered finished. You know, the, the artist sent it to the gallery and then one of the glass panes broke and he was like, ah, now it is finished. That's actually, I believe, what they're talking about here. That it, it, there was an act of becoming part way, right? It just kind of like happened. Ah, so that's what it is rather than the, uh, the actual art itself. Yeah, it's a, there's a, a great book uh, worth picking up called Suicide. Uh, the manuscript was dropped off. Uh, the author had written a handful of books. He dropped it off, and, uh, well, it turned out he went home and he hung himself. Uh, the book, because of this process and the way that it came together, it takes on a very, very haunting dimension as you read it, um, for sure. It's, it's, it's the, the, the becoming during is really great i didn't know that about the shop piece that really that actually does really close that out that's nice and i think it's interesting because obviously it, it deleuze and guattari seem less interested in content and more interested in the process of the content and i think that example there shows you that really well and the the actual art is almost not as important as the the way it was made and how it produces in turn right quick thing which is the thing <laughs> Uh, what we can say on this is the difference between the synchronic and the diachronic. Uh, the synchronic, you know, is having a picture uh, or, you know, a, fr a frozen uh, time lapse or, you know, fr frozen moment into the history of an object as it endures a process and goes through it. So, you know, there's a there's moments of metastability like this. But the, those moments of metastability are always put into a diachronic uh, timeline in the sense that they are results of changes and they are at the moment of other changes. And the state they are entering in relation with their surroundings are producing uh, different effects. So they, they, they're like a produced, producing kind of machinery. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly, and that's exactly where they want in that paragraph. But that's it. The celibate machine, what does it do? It produces the intensities that get consumed and thereby are consummating. It's interesting, uh, going back to the previous paragraph where they introduced them, and they say, um, in a way, they there's a reconciliation going on here between these two opposing forces. Um, the repulsion of the paranoiac and the attraction of the mir miraculating. And uh, it's interesting because um, like this example of the penal colony, I don't really know the, the rest of the list, but uh, you know, there's something like it's very much, um, uh, like it seems like this, the Lacanian jouissance is going on here in some way. Um, and also, um, you know, it's it's almost like there's some kind of link to 
like a mystical experience, right? Um, and how, so, and, and, you know, so, so like this, um, the, the, the pain and the suffering, uh, that's going to lead me to some kind of greater pleasure, like the, uh, you know, the, the, the enjoyment unto death, that kind of thing. And it seems like that, that may be playing a part in these celibate machine because, because they're celibate, right? Like that, that makes me think of monks and, uh, you know, mystics. Um, celibate more in the way of the Virgin Mary than celibate in that of a monk, in that the machine is born seemingly from nothing. And it's interesting that you call it a mystical experience, because, I mean, they do say that it's miraculating, that it has miraculating powers. It's a miraculous creation. Careful there. The, the transfiguration cannot be explained by the miraculating powers the machine possesses. Due to the, so I, I agree with you, just to... I'm just, I'm just saying, it, 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 they do use similar terminology as well, I was saying, to describe what it's like within the celibate machine. Well, uh, on that, I do want to move to the next paragraph, which describes actually uh, essentially what the celibate machine produces, which may help us derive a little bit more of an answer to that. So I'm going to move to the next paragraph. Uh, the question becomes, what does the celibate machine produce? What is produced by means of it? The answer would seem to be intensive quantities. There is a schizophrenic experience of intensive quantities in their pure state, to a point that it is almost unbearable. A celibate misery and glory experienced to the fullest, like a cry suspended between life and death. An intense feeling of transition, states of pure, naked intensity, stripped of all shape and form. These are often described as hallucinations and delirium, but the basic phenomenon of hallucination, I see, I hear, and the basic phenomenon of delirium, I think, presuppose an I feel at an even deeper level, which gives hallucinations their object and thought delirium its content. And I feel that I am becoming a woman, that I am becoming a god, and so on, which is neither delirious nor hallucinatory, but will project the hallucination or internalize the delirium. Delirium and hallucination are secondary in relation to the real primary emotion which in the beginning only experiences intensities, becoming transitions. Where do these pure intensities come from? They come from two preceding forces, repulsion and attraction, and from the opposition of these two forces. It must not be thought that the intensities themselves are in opposition to one another, arriving at a state of balance around a neutral state. On the contrary, they are all positive in relationship to the zero intensity that designates the full body without organs, and they undergo relative rises or falls, depending on the complex relationship between them and the variations in the relative strength of attraction and repulsion as determining factors. In a word, the opposition of the forces of attraction and repulsion produces an open series of intensive elements, all of them positive, that are never an expression of the final equilibrium of a system but consist, rather, of an unlimited number of stationary, metastable states through which a subject passes. The Kantian theory, according to which intensive quantities fill up to varying degrees, matter that has no empty spaces, is profoundly schizoid. All right, so we start with, I think, um, 
we'll start with the discussion of attraction and repulsion. Uh, because again, we're going back to how the syntheses, I think, operate against the body without organs. How I understand what they're talking about here is this idea that as uh, the desiring machines are basically attracted to or repulsed by the the way the body without organs, all the recordings, which it's they're always one to connect to, uh, the body without organs, because it is nothing, it is it is completely zero intensity, effectively anything uh, that is not zero intensity becomes this sort of uh, ecstatic representation that ends up on the other side of the celibate machine. Is that not it? <laughs> I'd stay away from the use of the word representation there, but yeah, it's the, it's the intensities that are, right, they're all positive in relation to the body without organs as a, as a zero. Yeah, it's, it's a repulsion is even positive because it's, it's something in comparison to the absolute nothingness that is the body without organs. Yeah, and that's how they get the intensive quantities. What would be so, an example of intensive quantities or the experiencing of intensive elements? Uh, desiring machines, for example, for me, makes sense. I'm, I'm going to pick up my water bottle, lips to that. I get some water, water to tongue feels good, water to throat, etc. Desiring machines connections, I can give you concrete ones all day. Is there any one that someone has, any example that would sort of explain what we're talking about when we talk about intensive elements? What does it, what do they mean by that? Well, I have an interpretation that may, may dovetail with that. And that is the um, sort of multitasking or uh, dealing with uh, technology where you have multiple, multiple sort of screens or mediation uh, of experiences that overlap, so uh, overstimulation, where there could be um, both certain repulsive elements and attractive elements in terms of uh, I like this or I don't like that, and the oscillation between those while moving across um, different spaces, be it uh, a conversation, communicating with somebody while interacting with, let's say, something in the visual medium. So is it is it literally the the way that, uh, as they say, the subject passes through? So I'm going to refer to myself as I, uh, I the subject, as I go about my day, I feel to everything. And as they say at the end there, as Kant says, there's no empty spaces. It's everything is filled with attraction and repulsion. Uh, I'm essentially moving around and looking at things. And as I'm moving, touching, doing all of that, I have a level of attraction and repulsion that is either intense or not uh, at some level, uh, but is always more than zero. Zero being a feeling of nothing against a thing uh, because there's that's the body without organs is zero. So is that the is that essentially what we're talking about here? My repulsion or attraction towards everything? Kind of. I, I, th I think there's sort of, I mean, this is definitely very an Anglo interpretation, but I think there's almost two ways to view the term intense or intensive. Right? So we could say that, well, obviously the body without organs is zero intensity. So it's not intensive. And then, and in that way, it's almost like the potency of something, right? Like this is a thing of substance of something. It has effects. It, it isn't just a zero intensity. 
um, but also intense, as in like it's happening now, like present tense, intense in the moment. Yeah, the potency point that's extremely important because we we don't want to suggest that it's like a, it's a nothingness, um, and that that can happen because the word zero there. To to get a Brooks's question there. So the subject is passing through these intensities, right? These intensive zones. The subjectivities are consumed during these passing throughs, right? And that's what consummates the subject. So with Judge Schraber, the sense of becoming woman, that is a subjectivity. He's experiencing the subjectivity of becoming woman. I realize it sounds a little funny, but in doing so, the different desire machines in that, it's not a hallucination for him. He's actually becoming woman. He's um, he's affected in that sense. And these different machines are actually producing those effects and are also consummated by those effects. So in that sense, the becoming woman, I like that example because you can see in this sense, it's not about like a static gender, right? It's about becoming woman in the sense of these different... Um, with passing through the body, the organs, right? With with the subject passing along it, the consumption of that residuum is what gives you a subject. So when you go through like an analysis on that, for Deleuze and Guadar, you're looking at the subjectivities that were being produced and that were consumed during that process. Well, so kind of is... uh, I can, no, go ahead. Yeah, just to add, I guess, to that, um, uh, the kind of experience I'm, have in mind with this is um, so it's interesting that somehow the celibate machine is it brings together attraction and repulsion right so they're both happening at the same time and that's that's really interesting so it's uh, i remember reading i think it was in zizek somewhere this example of um uh it's from a movie where the main character can only get sexually excited if there's some kind of danger I think it was a it was an old Italian movie. Um, not sure of the title, but you know, like there has to be some element of, of the, like he has to be sort of on the rooftop somewhere, or he has to be, you know, uh, climbing up to a woman he's not supposed to see, and you know that kind of thing. And so there you have a situation, you know, where his desire, his attraction, is co kind of co-present with the repulsion the sense of fear or, you know, the, the danger. Um, and, and that, I guess, gives that other, that experience of, um, you know, this, this, this mixture or, or whatever, this, this kind of coming together of these two forces. And I guess you can give a lot of other examples, right? Any kind of um, uh, sadomasochistic, uh, you know, practices and, um, so it seems like they're talking about that kind of uh, experience, maybe. No, I, I, I was going to actually almost say the same thing. Also, thank you. Someone else brought up Zizek. I just have to be very happy about that. It's been, I think, the entire time I've been doing the podcast, I'm the only person who's done, I think, Zizek said. So it's nice to hear someone else say it. Um, but the other, the other thing is the, the, the wording that you use, and I really like it because it's where I was heading, is they're, when they're talking about attraction and repulsion, I think they're, I don't want to say they mean it literally because that, that's kind of stupid, but uh, there's a there's a common parlance when we talk about repulsion or attraction as things being pleasurable or displeasurable, like 
Ken was asking in the chat, does this mean that? And it's like, I think they're actually removing that element from it. They're talking, they talk earlier about sort of uh, pleasure and sadness and all of these things being just part of production and being a thing. But I think with attraction, traction, repulsion, they mean almost my literal drive that I'm going towards or away from a thing. Uh, and that that is, it's a really very specific usage of that word that they keep throughout it. I really, I haven't thought about it being so quite just about towards and away. And it's the, the relative strength of attraction as repulsion as determining factors is ultimate whether I go towards or do a thing or away from a thing or have the objects connect or whatever it may be. And it's not so much about the pleasure or displeasure I get. It's more of a, I don't know, autonomic response. I don't know how to put it. I would say, think magnet, not happy, sad person. It's more like a force. Yeah, that's what that's a that's a great way to describe it. That's what I was trying to get at. I really like that. It's interesting. And you're gonna see into subsequent uh, readers and people who use Deleuze into their own uh, work. For example, Levy Bryant into onto cartography. He replaces the the term power for the term gravity, but it's in line with you know the geo the geosophy um, the geosophic ontology of Deleuze and Guattari. So you know. Mag magnetic attraction or gravity would work. And uh, the one thing I would say that I think gravity may be better with magnetism. The assumption is that there's a balance between the the you know positive and negative poles. Out of their way to say no, there's this is not about the two sides arriving in a state of balance. This is about actually that they're not in balance intensities and they're flowing and it's all this craziness happening around. So like it's a think of yeah, it as opposites, yeah. Yeah, it's like millions yeah, and, of magnetic fields around us. And that's I, the that's that's the thing about FX or FX, you know, they're always asymmetric. Uh, you know, there's the concept of flat ontology that comes up when we talk of Deleuze and you know with the lander and all those people. But there's always an asymmetry of effect. Like an object always have more effect on the other into a relation. So, you know, it's always something that we should be keeping in mind. Gravity makes sense because the mass of one object would influence the, the power or um, the effects it will have on the other object. So it's the first time I've understood that usage. Thank you guys very much. That's mm -hmm. it's Oh, my God. Now the next paragraph makes sense to me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, agree with, uh, I agree with all of this. And it definitely seems like they want to bring in this kind of... Um, um, I don't want to call it naturalistic, but, you know, these terms of uh, kind of machinic terms, right? Um, but I also think uh, it seems to me like with anti-Oedipus, you know, just the, the, the sort of the, uh, the rubric of the whole book, um, I think sexuality is the kind of the focal point. Um, and, uh, you know, because, I mean, Oedipus happens in the, in the sort of on the site of sexuality. And if we're to liberate ourselves from Oedipus, you know, the question is, well, what do we do with this kind of, you know, with the, the kind of intensity of desire and, uh, but also of the drive towards death. And to me, it seems like that's some, that's like, that's the problematic. And then the, the, the task it seems is how do we bring these machinic terms to bear on that? So we get rid of, uh, you know, like Brooks was talking earlier, intentionality, you know, we leave that behind because that's not uh that's not a good uh a concept to use here 
I, I do just want to comment on something that that you said earlier. Um, all all dreams when you were talking about um the celibate machine containing or using both uh, attraction or, or repulsion. I can't remember how you worded it, but I think it's important to to clarify that it's not like the paranoiac machine doesn't also do both, right? The celibate machine and the paranoiac machine and the, all these other machines, they have elements of, of both anyway. What What's important to note is that when the when the paranoiac machine is happening, right, it's kind of like there's a gear grinding or whatever. There's this friction. And eventually that friction, that intensity builds up and then suddenly, like the gear clicks in place, and then the celibate machine is is realized. Right, it becomes. So it's born from this friction between attraction and 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 repulsion, rather than being made of them necessarily. Yeah, it's, it's as they say, it succeeds those machines, and in that sense, because the energy is converted into voluptus, the celibate machine is now taking over in that stage of the process. That's right. Would it be incorrect in any way to read intensity as more of a metaphysical element than a subjective one? In terms of like any property which can have infinite gradations, sort of? I, I think those two things are not uh, mutually exclusive here. Right. I would say it is both subjective and metaphysical. In a way, it's like, but just like, it's, just just the idea of the subject or the subjectivity is placed within the old metaphysical realm of Deleuze as well. So it, it's always like you know, is the subject within this ontology or metaphysics, if you want? I, I don't think you can separate them, right? Like the subject is just a part of the metaphysics. Yeah, because they have a whole system. You know, there's a whole system of thought there, and the subject is you know a metastable moment within this this you know passage from potential to actualization and you know it's always in like a in a, a feed a feeding loop within that that metaphysical understanding of reality this is uh fantastic i'm going to move on to the next paragraph though because uh, i read ahead and i'm finally grasping some stuff in it that i did not get before so we're going to dive in uh also this is where we have uh my least favorite sentence about the body without organs in the whole book, so it's going to be fun. Uh, further, if we are to believe Judge Schreber's doctrine, attraction and repulsion produce intense nervous states that fill up the body without organs to varying degrees, states through which Schreber the subject passes, becoming a woman and many other things as well, following an endless circle of eternal return. The breasts on the judge's naked torso are neither delirious nor hallucinatory phenomena. They designate, first of all, a band of intensity, a zone of intensity on his body without organs. The body without organs is an egg. It is crisscrossed with axes and thresholds, with latitudes and longitudes and geodesic lines, traversed by gradients marking the transitions and the becomings, the destinations of the subject developing along these particular vectors. Nothing here is representative. Rather, it is all life and lived experience. The actual lived emotion of having breasts does not resemble breasts. It does not represent them any more than a predestined zone in the egg resembles the organ that it is going to be stimulated to produce within itself. Nothing but bands of intensity, potentials, thresholds, and gradients. 
a harrowing, emotionally overwhelming experience, which brings the schizo as close as possible to matter, to a burning, living center of matter. Quote, This emotion, situated outside of the particular point where the mind is searching for it, one's entire soul flows into this emotion that makes the mind aware of the terribly disturbing sound of matter and passes through its white-hot flame. This has always been the least favorite thing I've ever heard about the body without organs because it's, one, it, it's two clouds and plateaus, which I simply don't understand and may as well be written in Mandarin. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the body without organs is an egg has always simply confu- confounded me as a concept, especially earlier because they describe it wholly differently and calling it like it just gets confusing. So let's, let's take a few steps because I think uh, we might be able to uh, answer this question for me. Okay, I'm just going to give you like, you know, sometimes sometimes the, the concepts are really simple. The egg is the potential of becoming a chicken. You understand that, right? And, you know, it's just like a surface of inscription in which, you know, uh, the, 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 the actualization are grafting themselves. Is the like original point of this, this becoming. Yeah, it's just an egg because an egg, you know, makes a thing. Because it's be- be- yeah, it's before the form, and the yeah. form is only actualized within an ecology. I use ecology; they never use it, but like it's only, um, it, it's only it's it it performs its becoming into assembling itself with an environment or a medium. Well, so, they use medium so as they don't use it. I think I do grasp that, and the way that this is discussion just now of essentially how this attracts works now that we have a i have a grasp on the idea that attraction repulsion we mean essentially as a force that it's not a oh i like that or i dislike that that makes me happy that makes me sad which is very much how i have been grasping it instead it's that the the lived experience of life where i'm walking around and i i'm attracted or repulsed that these things in this can produce nervous states that fill up the body without organs to varying degrees states through which Schreber passes. And this is when they start talking about the becoming woman, becoming all of this. The, the, the thing that nails it for me is the sentence. The breasts on the judge's naked torso are neither delirious nor hallucinatory phenomenon. And that's in, uh, in his talks. He pulls his top off. He does, uh, I don't know why I picture Buffalo Bill every time I think about this. I just don't know why. But that's like the vision. He's there. He's looking at his breasts. He's being feminine. He's draped himself up. And as far as he's concerned, he's got big, like he's got boobs, not men breasts. He's got breasts. And it's not so much that they are unreal. It's not that they're hallucination. These are the, the way that his attractions and repulsions have been organized. The zone of intensity based on everything that has been recorded on his body without organs. So because of this, the body without organs, because it's, as they say, an egg, uh, what it is, is it's basically all of these zones of intensities. And as they interact, they basically cause us to have these real lived emotions and these real lived experiences of having the things, even though it's not necessarily the thing itself. It's an emotionally overwhelming experience. And an hallucination is this, even in the theory of, you know, uh, mental health or mental illness, depending on the era you describe it, uh, having an hallucination is something that happens like before perception, but it's been, as it's been given in your perception, you know, from the different senses or a coupling of different senses, um, 
you're interpreted as real. So it, it, it becomes part of this pers- per, uh, perceptive assemblage. And it's very real, you know, even if it's, you know, a false representation or something that comes in from, you know, uh, a miscoupling or a, mis- a mismatch within your, your brain function, it, it, it is really real and it has real effects as well. I mean, I guess one way to look at it is that the only way that we could validate a hallucination, right, that we could say uh, something was a hallucination, is, is from an outside perspective, right? So I could say, oh, man, that person's hallucinating. But if I'm the hallucinating person, I can't say that. Exactly. There's no way for me to validate whether it's a hallucination or not. But I think it's more than that as well. Like this idea that it's that it's, that it's not a hallucination because a hallucination sort of implies that there's like a reality like under the surface, like there's another plane. But to Deleuze and Guattari, there's just the one substance, right? There's one plane. And if you're familiar with Derrida, I'm sure this will click as well. That we kind of just look at stuff and decide what that stuff is. We just give it a name or a concept, right? And so who will you then to decide? Like when you decide those breasts are not breasts or that they are breasts, like by what authority are you are you making that claim? And it's like by no authority, really. And it's and it's uh, the, the, the added parts of this, and this is a really interesting part of sort of thinking about how signs operate inside of this, that Schreber looks at his... Uh, men have breasts. We sit here, uh, and he looks at them. And when he says, when he says he's looking at his breasts, he's not talking about like uh, I'm looking at the literal thing that I have as a man. I happen to have breasts, blah blah. blah. But when he he's talking about it, and as because uh, I I remember reading the Schreber thing, he's really talking about having like women's boobies, and that the way that he's talking about it, even though he has breasts, the way he's describing about it is the thing that is. It's not that, but it's it's how he sees it. It's the, the lie he's not a lie he's able to tell himself, but it's how he's experiencing sort of the the symbols of his breasts on his body given all of these intensities. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, he's becoming a woman. And not as a hallucination, right? He's ontologically experiencing womanhood in that sense, the intensities of it. I suppose I'd like to talk about the the, the surface of the egg now. In the, um, I think that the, 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 this makes the conjunctive synthesis, uh, synthesis seem clearer here. Um, if we view um, the uh, the connective synthesis is right when when two points are connected, and uh, there's like a an, uh, you could say there's an attraction there or whatever you want to say, and then there's the disjunctive synthesis. And I think it's worth noting that the disjunctive synthesis is a connection as well. It's not not a connection. It's a type of connection still. It's just different from the connective uh, synthesis and then where these synthesis overlap like like if you imagine them as like lines on the surface of the egg where they overlap is where we get the conjunctive synthesis and where they overlap uh not two of them not three of them where a shitload of them overlap uh, yeah, it, I think it almost doesn't matter how many there are, but there's just always a shitload. It's 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 a it, it's it's a, the, I'm just trying to get away because we've we've had a couple of people, and I I know I started this thinking about this as a singular. That Freud very much talks about there being sort of singular entities: the ego, the superego, the id. Whereas Deleuze is all about multiplicities, and here is extremely that where it's an uncountable number effectively, and as you look through all of them, where they're all overlapping. Oh, there, there you go. That's the thing. 
And so it's this really interesting way of thinking about how, how his semiotics work. I really, ah, this is finally piecing together. Goddamn. I think we can make a pretty easy analogy to show how complex this relation is, right? If we just think about an apple, think about all the connections an apple has, right? It's obeying gravity, it's its color, it's its taste, it's its consistency, it's da 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 all these things are overlapping, right? One, there's no, there is no one thing ever. And no matter how simple that thing is, there is no one thing. There's always all these many connections within. Love it. Uh, any questions on this point? Uh, so, uh, Corridor asks, uh, is it the surface only? Is there a reference to internal differentiation? May have to have you uh, expand on that slightly. Um, it's almost hard to talk about like yeah, internal. We're referring to the egg and talking about the egg. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you could say, I don't know. It's weird because you could say that there's stuff inside, but you could also say that there's nothing there. That it's just like completely hard. Um, Schrodinger's yeah. egg. Yeah, because there are there are varying bands of intensity on the body without organs, right? But I guess those are on the surface. Because the body without organs isn't a thing. Were you? I don't know if you were here for our discussion on the body without organs, because I don't want to like spend ages trying to, to 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 elaborate. But it's not a thing. It doesn't have it, an inherent aspect to it, right? It just is. Um, this like anti-production, complete set of zero intent overall intensity yeah the trick here is later on they're going to talk about uh, this this internal external distinction like for the body without organs the surface of it isn't really subject to that so like it's not about are you talking about the outside of the egg or the inside of the egg it's that everything we're talking about in relation to the egg is upon that surface so whether we're talking about the yolk inside the egg or we're talking about the shell that entire assemblage is in relation to the body without organs of the egg. Because it has no organs. It has nothing organized within it, right? It has only... Orga organization only happens from without it. Exactly. And that's why it's not really subject to the internal-external distinction, because it's about its surface upon which these zones of intensity are possible. Yeah, it doesn't have an internal or an, an external. It's just a relevant binary to it. Just picking up Excellent. on that... Uh... Um, I'm curious how we can try to relate this to the point about matter that he makes at the end of the paragraph, or they make at the uh, towards the end of the paragraph. So a harrowing, nothing but bands of intensity, potentials, thresholds, gradients, a harrowing, emotionally overwhelming experience, which brings the schizo. Okay, so that was. Uh, let me switch. And as he was reading out the thing. So brings the schizo um, as close as possible to matter, to a burning living center of matter. And then there is also a, um, a mention of matter in the previous paragraph around Kant, the Kantian um, uh, theory of matter, according to which intensities, qualities fill up, matter that has no empty spaces, profoundly schizoid. And um, I guess I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is. Um, there seems to be a way in which this third synthesis, uh, the um, conjunctive synthesis, and as somebody was explaining how the connective and the disjunctive kind of overlap on that on that spot, um, is also bringing us to this somehow in touch with matter itself, and I find that really fascinating. Um, it's because it seems like 
you know, sort of historically, like this will be where the thing in itself shows up, right? For Kant, that was a big no-no, that never happens. But it seems like with Deleuze and Guattari, actually no, Kant, it does happen. We get in touch with like as close as we can to matter itself. And there is this, you know, um, I don't know if it's a special experience or like it's the synthesis that goes on. I guess I can try to elaborate here. Um, so when they, I think when they're talking about matter, they mean anything. So <laughs> there's a one substance, right? They have a plane of eminence. It's very Spinozian as opposed to, to Kantian. And I think when they're talking about Kant here, about like when they compare it to the schizophrenic, like the the it's very the matter the way Kant describes matter is very schizophrenic. It's that when a, a, a not psychotic person, right, who's looking at the world, they kind of just disregard lots of things as like not being real, right? Like I can't think of a good like Harry Potter. They might be like Harry Potter's not real, right? God's not real, whatever. But the but the psychotic doesn't think that. They don't think oh this thing's not real or this thing is real. Everything is like whole and, and to them. Everything is matter to them, um, and I think that's what they're trying to get at here. That that's how we should look at things. Like when I talk about like some some abstract idea, wow, well, to get an example of an abstract idea, like my connection to you, right? Yeah, that's an abstract idea to to, to a lot of people that you might they might be like, oh, well, that's not a real thing, right? That's an that's that's an abstract thing. And and Deleuze and Guattari are like, no, it's the same. It's the one substance, right? It's a thing still. So that so this idea of like a noumena, right, in that in that context doesn't mean anything, right? There is no thing in itself, because there's no because the the to to separate the noumena and the phenomena already doesn't make any sense. It's like a false dichotomy. Who who yeah. are we to say like this thing is real and this thing isn't real? Yeah, I think that I think that's spot on. And if it helps too, this is a quote from Anton and Artaud, so it might at least help place you with it too. <laughs> Copy in a paragraph I've been reading from a wonderful little piece uh, specifically about actually that uh, called, I believe it's called Materialism Without Matter uh, on Deleuze. And it's a really great breakdown. It utilizes some of his other texts, specifically Logic of Sense, which I'm going to do my best not to try to get into. We're going to be doing a reading of it. I'm super excited for, but it's really important. So uh, essentially, Webcam Parrot, everything you said, spot on. So it's really great. Oh. I'm going to continue, however. How is it possible that the schizo was conceived of as the autistic rag, separated from the real and cut off from life, that he is so often thought to be? Worse still, how can psychiatric practice have made him this sort of rag? How can it have reduced him to the state of a body without organs that has become a dead thing? This schizo who sought to remain at that unbearable point where the mind touches matter and lives in every intensity, consumes it. And shouldn't this question immediately compel us to raise another one, which at first glance seems quite different? How does psychoanalysis go about reducing a person who, this time, is not a schizophrenic, but a neurotic, to a pitiful creature who eternally consumes daddy and mommy and nothing else whatsoever? How could the conjunctive synthesis of so that's what it was and so it's me have been reduced to the endless, dreary discovery of Oedipus? So it's my father, my mother? We cannot answer these two questions at this point. We merely see how very little the consumption of pure intensities has to do with family figures, and how very different the connective tissue of the so-its is from the Oedipal tissue. 
short par short paragraph. Great, fantastic one. Uh, and uh, I think we're going to move on to the next one, unless anyone has any questions. Uh, so sometimes they write a paragraph you don't have to really go over. I kind of like it. How can we sum up this entire vital progression? Let us trace the first path, the shortest route. The points of disjunction on the body without organs form circles that converge on the desiring machines. As an appendix, or as a spare part adjacent to the machine, machine passes through all the degrees of a circle and passes from one circle to another. This subject itself is not at the center, which occupied by the machine, but on the periphery, with no fixed identity, forever decentered, defined by the states through which it passes. Thus, the circles traced by Beckett's unnameable, quote, a succession of irregular loops now sharp and short as in the waltz now of a parabolic sweep, end quote, with Murphy, Watt, Marrier, etc., as states, without the family having anything to do whatsoever to do with all of this, or to follow a path that is more complex but leads in the end to the same thing, by means of the paranoiac machine and the miraculating machine, the proportions of attraction and repulsion on the body without organs produce, starting from zero, a series of states in the celibate machine, and the subject is born of each state in the series, is continually reborn of the following state that determines him at a given moment, consuming, consummating, all these states that cause him to be born and reborn. The lived state coming first in relation to the subject that lives it. I actually think we've talked about this already. Um, does anyone have questions on this paragraph? The, the, the big part that they're talking about here is really tracing through and talking through how the subject is created, where the identity comes from, how it's defined, uh, this sort of uh, uh, lack of centeredness. Uh, it's one of the big things they get through, and you'll hear Jack in a number of our talks uh, always be reminding me to be very careful when I use centered subjectification. Somebody say, well, you are at the middle of this, you're not. Uh, it, so there's a sense of that, there's a feeling of that that we have, but we're not, that we're kind of off to the side. Um, and then okay, the, the so sorry, go ahead. Really, I do have a question really quickly, because it seems from that paragraph that I made an equivocation for a moment between celibate machine and the body without organs. So maybe somebody can begin to unpack the difference there, the relatedness, or whether in fact in this paragraph we see the celibate machine uh, as a stand-in for the body without organs. The answer there is no. The celibate machine is not a stand-in for the body without organs. Um, the celibate machine, so earlier they talked about the body without organs, right? When the machine stopped dead uh, in service of that of the body without organs that they were articulating, right? The subjectivities in that are enabled by the body without organs. That's why it works as a zero, right? It's kind of like, I think of it kind of like an origin point, whether you're going negative or one, you're starting from somewhere. In this sense, it's the potentialities enabled by the body without organs. And in, in that enablement, it's through the disjunctive use of the surface and how it puts the machines to work through miraculation and uh, repulsion. So the celibate machine is seceding those two machines, right? It's seceding the repulsion and attraction machines to basically 
consummate these zones that the subjects pass through. I also want to say that the the other part of this that is important is the way that the body without organs is uh, created during this process. And I don't want to say created. I know it's not necessarily the case, but it's the body without organs begins to exist because of all of these syntheses operating as they do. And when we have intensity coming off of the body without organs, it presupposes, and I, I, it's a little tautological, but you can't be have attraction or repulsion to things that are not already recorded on the body without organs. That's not really how it works, uh, because uh, essentially the body without organs as lived experience, uh, your body without organs, any of ours, the attraction repulsion comes off of that. It is zero intensity. It is just the recordings of all the things that have happened. The attraction or repulsion that comes off of that is necessarily then to those things, the things that have been recorded. So uh, there's there's a lot of elements and a lot of partial objects that are not included in that, that we can't have uh, celibate machine sort of uh, produce intensities on or against until we've actually you know dealt with them or set with them. There's a a natural vacuum sort of on the side of reality that is the unknown unknowns, and I've started to use this term a lot more in what we're talking about. Um, but it's that the way that the body without organs is set up, it's very, I guess, would be there's edges and there's no way to look at the edge because we don't know where it is because you don't know where the edge is because if you knew you'd be able to see past it and you'd be able to keep going. So there's a there's an implication here as well that there's only attraction and repulsion to the things that we've actually been experiencing. And they okay. do, as Webcam Parrot uh, talks about, there, there's also no centeredness. Uh, centeredness is an arbitrary thing where we say the center of a thing is, or even what we say a thing is, uh, is incredibly uh, uh, capricious. And it's it's, I think, a lot of it, as I'm reading this, seems to be based on the attraction repulsion that is done as part of the celibate machine, it feels like. Uh, I mean, they mean it metaphysically as well. Like, I'm sure you've either thought this or encountered somebody that thought this, that, like, logic was the foundation of everything, right? Like, this tree-like understanding of a foundation that then everything comes from. And it's like, all they've really done is chosen an arbitrary center in that sense, right? Um in the yeah. riser and decided the tree is there. But also is the continuation of Kant's uh, criticism about, you know, the, the noumenon and the phenomenon as uh, this, this and, and the new realist, uh, not the new realist, but the, the, the new ontology people are, you know, the object-oriented ontology people are criticizing. This is also saying that you cannot exhaust all the property of an object through... Um, the observation of the phenomenon there's like always like an underlying thing that's you're gonna miss so you know when we try to um crystallize an object through you know a discourse putting a word on it you know or trying to explain it we're always going to miss something and we're going to place it at the middle of something or outside of a system of relation so it's it you know, we never get the the whole thing. We never get the whole story. It's always partial, and you know that's why the term partial comes in. Yeah, that's dead on. Because to understand these things, you've got to understand them contextually and their different relations and thereby connections and rates. So you can't have a tree without all the different things it's connected with, and all the different uh, partial objects that even make a tree possible. Yeah, and then you cannot have a tree without the soil, without, you know, the warmth of the sun, the luminosity, the water, 
but the forest as well because it's been reproduced from other trees so it's always you know within an ecological uh array of other things you, you couldn't have it you couldn't have a tree without cosmic dust in the vacuum between planets and like it it just it ends up becoming this sort of absurdly recursive thing where effectively you can't have a thing without literally everything else yeah and then you know that's that's when they will go further into their terrorization later on talking about chaos as a form uh, trying to understand like you know it's like a molecular chaos like everything is connected there's a university of being and everything emerges as a differentiation of that so the tree is the differentiation of cosmic dust you know <laughs> and i mean even if we took the tree and we did atomize it or whatever and separate it from the rest of reality every point of the tree would still be connected to every point of the tree, abstract, physical, otherwise. Everything you could say about the tree would be connected to everything else you could say about the tree. So you don't even understand the tree, like even atomized like that. Excellent. Um, the last paragraph in here is, uh, is the rest of the uh, entire chapter, the entire section, and this is uh, not a short one, and there is a ton of stuff in here uh, especially if you're not super versed in Nietzsche, which I go in and out of saying that sometimes I am and then other times I absolutely am not. So as I go through, I'm going to try to find a place to stop. Uh, and then if I don't, I don't. Uh, this, If I remember right, this paragraph flows very lovely. So we may get to the very end. And so we will take a bunch of questions. This is what Klosowski has admirably demonstrated in his commentary on Nietzsche. The presence of the stimung as a material emotion, constitutive of the most lofty thought and the most acute perception. Quote, the centrifugal forces do not flee the center forever, but approach it once again, only to retreat from it yet again. Such is the nature of the violent oscillations that overwhelm an individual so long as only his own center and is in the circle of which he himself is a part. For if these oscillations overwhelm him, it is because each one of them corresponds to an individual other than the one he believes himself to be, from the point of view of the unlocatable center. As a result, an identity is essentially fortuitous, and a series of individualities must be undergone by each of these oscillations, so that, as a consequence, the fortuitousness of this or that particular individual, individuality will render all of them necessary. The forces of attraction and repulsion, of soaring ascents and pledging falls, produce a series of intensive states based on the intensity equals zero that designates the body without organs. But what is most unusual is that here again a new afflex is necessary, merely to signify this absence. There is no Nietzsche the self, professor of philology, who suddenly loses his mind and supposedly identifies with all sorts of strange people. Rather, there is the Nietzschean subject who passes through a series of states and who identifies these states with the names of history. Every name in history is I. The subject spreads itself out along the entire circumference of the circle, the center of which has been abandoned by the ego. At the center is the desiring machine, the celibate machine of the eternal return, a residual subject of the machine. Nietzsche as subject garners a euphoric reward, voluptus, from everything that this machine turns out, a product that the reader had thought to be no more than the fragmented au revoir by Nietzsche. 
Nietzsche believes that he is now pursuing not the realization of a system, but the application of a program in the form of reviews of the Nietzschean discourse, which have now become the repertory, so to speak, of his histrionicism, end quote. It is not a matter of identifying with various historical personages, but rather identifying the names of history with zones of intensity on the body without organs. And time, Nietzsche as exclaims, me, so it's me. No one has ever been as deeply involved in history as the schizo or dealt with it in this way. He consumes all of universal history in one fell swoop. We begin by defining him as homo natura, and lo and behold, he has turned out to be homo historia. This long road that leads from one to the other stretches from Holderlin to Nietzsche, and the pace becomes faster and faster. Quote, the euphoria could not be prolonged in Nietzsche for as long a time contemplative alienation of Holderlin. The vision of the world granted to Nietzsche does not inaugurate a more or less regular succession of landscapes or still extending over a period of 40 years or so. It is rather a part of the process of recollection of it. A single actor will play the whole of it in pantomime in the course of a single solemn day because the whole of it reaches expression and then disappears once again in the space of just one day, even though it may appear to have taken place between December 31st and January 6th in a realm above and beyond the usual rational calendar, end quote. This was what we were just discussing. I, that, I mean, this is, this is just a really fantastic way of sort of talking through that, utilizing Klosowski and Nietzsche as the example of the subject decentered, going around itself, multiple types of individuation, depending on where in the intensities that the subject seems to have been created to exist, all of those things. Um, so I, I have a question as I'm reading this and talking about individuation. The general conception of a Cartesian subject is almost that it is uh, a thing that is uh, continuous. Uh, I exist and I continue to exist and I exist as a thing, not a soul, but that there is an ongoing consistent growth. This seems to imply, uh, as I'm reading it now, that the uh, Delusian subject is essentially uh, incredibly contingent based on the process of the desiring machines and the three syntheses, and it's consistently reproduced almost as a vibration. Uh, I mean, I don't want to do the, I don't want to keep doing the Cartesian Delusian thing because I think it's going to get tough, but yeah, so let's take it in terms of the self, right? Is there a self that is gradually fixed and sort of just gradually unra unraveling, right? I shouldn't say gradually, but that is there and just sort of unraveling in the person. For Deleuze and Guadari, not quite, right? There is Nietzsche. There's not Nietzsche, the philologist, who goes mad because he sees the um, the horse, right? It's not like a madness struck his rational mind. There's constantly the assemblage that we call Nietzsche, that Nietzsche himself understands as the names of history being I. So later on, they're going to talk about simulation uh, in a Deleuzian sense, in a Deleuzian Guattarian sense, not quite Baudrillardian. And then the thrust there is to talk about this very thing where Nietzsche simulates um, the intensities, not as a self, but as a subject. In this, and, and in that sense, doing subjectivity, he's 
there is an experience of the subjective there, of the subjectivities, such as Zarathustra being a very obvious one. Um, the point they're getting at with this is that what we call the Nietzschean subject, right, is one because we, we give it a name, but also to understand that the Nietzschean subjectivity that we talk about today is enabled by Nietzsche's own series of experiences, which produces um, what we can now call the simulation of a, a Nietzschean subject uh, of a Nietzschean subjectivity. Right. So what I'm talking about here is the way that they're talking about uh, the desiring machines. Uh, the process is not one giant long process. It's a lot of little fits and starts, a lot of breaks, a lot of stuff happening. It's consistent and it's happening a lot, but it's, 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 it's a, I don't want to say it's a, a flowing process. Uh, how I always understood Freud, for example, when he talks of the unconscious and the, the way you are, is that the unconscious is like this big consistent swimming pool that things are flying around in. And that swimming pool is like, and it, it continually exists. It's, things go in and out, stuff moves around, shit happens inside. There's a consistency of uh, 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 concretization that it's always there. This seems to imply that uh, because the machines, the desiring machines are in fits and starts, breaking, going, doing stuff, producing this, producing that, and then the celibate machines producing at some level, uh, you know, these this uh, zones of intensities. And then as the subject is created at sort of the end of each of these processes in retrospect, it's almost like there's uh, a subject being created also all the time consistently based on literally the things that have been in that desiring machine at those times and the intensities that are happening. So when he talks about sort of Nietzsche moving around the circle and uh, the individuation that starts to happen, each time Nietzsche as subject exclaims, they're me, so it's me, each time he's in the circle in a different position, it's a, it's still Nietzsche as subject, but it's not the same subject. There is a creation process, uh, like a photocopy, I guess, that ends the process, or a piece of paper in the long stage of a printing process. And it's happening a shitload. Uh, so perception-wise and how we experience it, it seems to be consistent, but it feels like they're saying that it's almost like this consistent contingent process of creation is where the subject comes out of it. Yeah, you, you want to be careful with individuation because we're now we're putting it in dialogue with Jung, which we can do. But right, so the, the thrust there is that Nietzsche is not being himself. Nietzsche has been produced as himself, which is to say the Nietzschean subject, Nietzsche's style, is this with the fragmented ovoirs. These are all productions of different uh, assemblages, right, that have been enabled in that sense. Roger, webcam parrot. Ken, anyone, what am I saying? Is it just terrible? I just, it's this last set, this last thing is hitting me differently than it did the first time we read it and actually different than it did last night when I read it. Feel free to tell me if I'm way off. It just seems really interesting the way that they're describing all of these parts and the circle and. Uh, I think you're more or less correct. Yeah. I, I, maybe something to elaborate with, uh, with Nietzsche is um, that his, it's funny that they call him a professor of philology because obviously he was not really much of a philologist um, and he did some philology and then this very famous philologist, I can't remember his name, sent Nietzsche a letter and was like, I, Nietzsche, I love you, but never do that again. Like you're awful <laughs> at, at philology. And then he kind of stopped doing it. And so, but, but there's still like this view of him. We still think of him as a philologist despite that. 
as like this atomized there's no becoming there right it's just like this static thing and i think the thing we should avoid that what's uh michael jackson the ba- michael uh jordan the baseball player same kind of thing yeah but i think yeah. it's like a it's like a joke on you know how we crystallize people into a metastable identity and you know they they don't say this they they say this tongue in cheek as they say for many other things as well well that that makes sense that it would be tongue in cheek because it it feels like a lot of what they're talking about here when they say the forces of attraction and repulsion soaring ascents and plunging falls produce a series of intensive states based on the body without organs being zero uh there is no nature of the self this guy this thing who suddenly loses his mind and supposedly identifies with all sorts of people Rather, there is the subject, Nietzsche, who passes through a series of states and who identifies these states with the names of history. So it's this uh, consistently becoming based on your subjectivity is basically constantly becoming based on all the desiring machines, all the shit they're recording in the body without organs, and then on top of it, all the intensities that are being repelled by the body without organs, uh, being repelled or attracted to, depending on how it's going. And all of that shit is crazily hyper contingent based on kind of your position in things and how you view yourself as a center inside of it. And those things are changing pretty much consistently all the time. It's also worth noting that Nietzsche is a great example because Nietzsche used to write Nietzsche, like through Nietzsche, like Plato used to write through Socrates and that Nietzsche, he was not the work of Nietzsche does not really represent Nietzsche that well. Um, because he was kind of like this, he's described as like this smaller, kind of like timid guy, not like this uh, Nietzschean, like, you know, existentialist or whatever, like living fiercely type thing. And and he used to always write from tons of different, like, uh, he had tons of different writing styles and wrote from loads of different perspectives and, and things like that. But we still have this picture of, of Nietzsche, like this atomized picture of Nietzsche, like based on his writing, even though he wasn't even writing that way. And, you know, if you follow the biography of Nietzsche, it was somebody who was sick, somebody who was in resentment for many, many things. And, you know, we still picture him. And I think the a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people um, have pictured him wearing an armor. And I think it's something that is prevalent on the right when they take Nietzsche. They make him as like a, you know, superhuman hero. But in fact, he was... Uh, quite different from that all right uh i believe that is the end of the section and we are nearing the end of time now uh i want to open it up for any last questions over this section uh and i may answer by saying that it's coming up soon so be ready for that but if we can answer any questions please if anyone has any thoughts or anything please ask now you can do so in chat or vocally either way All right. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close it out today. Thank all of you for joining us and uh, thank you for listening to us at home. Those of you who are uh, next week, we will be diving into 1.4, a materialist psychiatry where a lot of these ideas start coming together. And we also, I think, get a preview of a lot of the major ideas of the book. So we will be uh, doing that. I look forward to all of you joining us again. Thank you so much. Thank all of you guys really for coming. This is uh, a highlight of my week. I love this shit.